back to right now. I'm Stephen Kent. We'd like to thank all of our new subscribers and there are many of you. Uh, if you are not a subscriber, we welcome you to hit that subscribe button here on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. And don't be shy, bring a plus one. Now, if you are a podcast native like myself, a review and five stars would be Fantastic. It really helps us get the show out to more people. Onward. So, the streets of Washington, D.C., where we produce this fine show, were calm last week, which is great. No broken glass or confrontations. That should not be news. But we had been hearing for days on end that D.C. and other cities across the country were bracing for protests as we awaited the verdict in the Derek Chauvin George Floyd case. We had the National Guard brought in here. But how did it end? Guilty on all charges. A Minneapolis jury convicted Chauvin of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. It took the jury just about 10 hours. The verdict set off no protests. Chauvin's going to be sentenced on June 16th, but the case and all the attention it got seems to have made no difference. In the 24 hours following Chauvin's conviction, six police killings were reported on in the media. One that got a lot of attention was in Columbus, Ohio, on the same morning that Floyd's case was closed, that of Makia Bryant, a 16-year-old black girl. She was killed by Officer Nicholas Reardon whilst she lunged at two other girls with a knife. Right now, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, is in a state of emergency over the police shooting of Andrew Brown, Jr., so we have new stories, new calls for justice, and a renewed push by activists and politicians to institute policing reforms, such as the abolishment of qualified immunity. So we're going to get into these shootings, valid questions about lethal force, and if the cops can ever use it anymore without sparking mass protests. These are all important questions, and I'm joined today to do it with Olivia Rondo. She's a conservative activist, a conservatarian, I suppose, more accurately, a champion wrestler and YouTuber, and the ever-fabulous Brad Palumbo, conservative columnist and a dignified co-host. Welcome to you both. Good to be with you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Let's start with Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict um, and whether or not we are surprised. I, for one, was not expecting it to go down this way, but I want to start with you, Olivia, were you surprised? I was. You know, as someone who has a lot of libertarian leanings, I don't have a lot of faith in the criminal justice system. I do think that what he did was wrong. He needed to be held accountable. Um, but on the other side of the issue, I do feel like there may have been some outside influence um, with, certain po with certain politicians and commentators such as Maxine Waters, you know, somewhat encouraging the riots if they didn't get the verdict they wanted, which they ended, ended up getting. But I feel like it's possible that the jurors may have been pressured, um, you know, under the threat of possible riots, as we've seen there's no doubt year. the juries feel that kind of yeah there's I, my yeah. take is that there's definitely kind of a dark cloud hanging over the verdict right it was done in a way with so much pressure so much national attention if i was a juror i'd be scared that if i don't go the way that some people want me to my neighborhood will be uh looted and rioted the next mm -hmm. day but that said i think he clearly was guilty of at least manslaughter and i think that the second and third degree murder charges because in minnesota they don't actually require uh intent no one really believes he intended to kill uh, George Floyd, but he did act with reckless disregard for human life, I think. So I'm I'm glad to see that he was held accountable for this. And while I think there is that cloud, ultimately, to me, this is a sign that the system worked. So I am a little bit 
irked at some of the conservative news bubble narrative over whether or not this was a fair trial. It seems like everybody on each side of the debate, no matter what happens, they get something to report on that is unjust and that the justice system um, is is irrelevant and right and doesn't have any credibility. I mean, Fox News, Newsmax, all those people, like the next day they're going, justice doesn't exist anymore. Any jury can be pressured by social media to do whatever they want. The mob wins. But they wouldn't have been doing that if it had gone the other way. Um, I don't know what we're supposed to think here because it seems like everybody's just making money off it no matter what. I Again, I don't have a lot of faith in the system. I think a big part of why the verdict was, you know, why he was found guilty was because of outside influence. And there are a lot of cases where the police weren't held accountable. I mean, I'm yeah. from Montgomery County, Maryland. That was where the infamous Duncan Lemp shooting took place last year within 24 hours of Breonna Taylor's killing, two mm-hmm. unjust killings. Um, and the police are still not held accountable today as he was killed in his bed sleeping, similar to how Breonna Taylor was killed. So I really, really, I just, I don't trust them at all. And I, that's not to say I don't think, that's not to say I'm coming up from like a leftist point of view. I'm not with BLM. I don't think it's necessarily a black or white issue or a race issue because Duncan Lump was a white man. You know, I feel like we should not look at this through that, you know, partisan lens. There is a problem. I think most people, most Americans across the political spectrum agree we have a problem with policing uh, and abuse of force. That that's the main problem, and there's a racial element to it. But it's not just a question of race. It's a question of overcriminalization and over policing, in my view. We have thousands of laws that are enforced that shouldn't exist. Mm. Uh, I mean, some of the victims of police brutality were uh, the only reason the police encounter was initiated because they were selling counterfeit cigarettes or uh, passing off fake twenty dollar bills. And that's or, George Floyd, right? Right, counterfeit bill. But so yeah. I guess I do feel I, I sense this frustration, and I agree with it that to some extent these trials, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If he gets off, well, it's just a sign that the system is rigged against accountability. It's a white supremacist system, time to riot in the streets. If he's held guilty, it's a sign of a rigged jury, too much social media pressure, it's mob justice. So how do you look at kind of these activists and how they approach this issue? Because maybe I'm a cynic, but I increasingly feel like BLM, Democrat politicians, even far-right radio hosts, they don't want this issue to be solved. They don't want real progress because it's so... Uh, successful for them to beat the drum on it. it. They definitely want to instigate it, people on both sides. And certainly with Black Lives Matter, the organization, I used to be one of those people that, you know, would say BLM, would say hashtag Black Lives Matter. But now that I look closely at the organization, I realize that they have a lot of grifters. I mean, lawyers like Benjamin Crump or Reverend Al Sharpton, or even the co-founder of BLM, um, Patrice Cullors, who is a self-proclaimed trained Marxist but owns four multi-million dollar homes. One Ain't of the, the, the most game. recent one is in Malibu. I feel like there's probably not a lot of black people who are facing police brutality in Malibu. It's probably not a big issue there. Um, I don't think she's really with the people at all. It really pays to consolidate the means of, uh, of production. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right. All of this stuff is, to some extent, an outrage industry. Yeah. And that's why I feel... Uh, uh, a bit discouraged by the way it's covered on both sides. Well, let's talk a little bit about sentencing because that's going to be what happens next is whether or not he gets a satisfactory uh, sentence, Derek Chauvin, um, in the death of George Floyd, which will also lead to more protests. I mean, if he gets just you know a couple of years, right, you know, there's going to be protests. There are going to be people smashing windows because it's not enough. He took a life. 
Do you have any opinions on like what is an appropriate sentence for this stuff? Because this is where justice just gets to be completely subjective. How many years do you attach to voluntary manslaughter? Yeah, I think ideally, I mean, I agree. Nothing is going to so- really uh, please everyone. If it's a shorter sentence, some people will be critical of it. If it's a really long sentence, they'll be critical of it. Something in the middle, right? I don't know if that's 10 years. I don't know if that's 15 years, 12 years. But there's got to be serious accountability when you show reckless disregard for an American's life. But at the same time, I mean, we shouldn't be locking people up forever and throwing away the key, no matter how outraged the national discourse is over something, when it was not first-degree murder. There are there are shades and degrees here that matter. Correct. I think that the range that you presented, 10 to 15 years, that sounds reasonable. I don't think that Derek Chauvin is a deranged white supremacist psychopath killer who's going to come out and kill the first black guy he sees. I don't think he had the intent to kill George Floyd, but as you said, he acted with reckless endangerment. So he deserves to, you know, pay for that crime. But I don't think that, you know, far into the future, he would necessarily be like a danger to society. Yeah, I mean, under Minnesota sentencing guidelines for a person with no criminal history, each murder charge carries a presumptive sentence of about 12 and a half years, while a manslaughter conviction is four years. Uh, now, each count carries a different maximum, and it can go up as high as 40. So, like, people are saying, like, oh, like, he should get the rest of, of life in prison. Some people, I've, I've seen commentators have been saying that he needs to be buried beneath the prison, have the, have the key thrown away. I mean, obviously, this is not the way that you should want it to go if you're talking about manslaughter, where it's an accidental murder, because what you hold him to is what you're going to be held to yourself, not when you uh, kneel down and suffocate someone to death, but when you accidentally harm somebody in your own life. I mean, this happens right. to stuff all the And the, the time. question also is, what is the point of incarceration? We've, have, right. we've looked at incarceration for a long time just as punishing people, just retribution. It really should be, at least in part, about rehabilitation. And with the exception of like deranged killers and dangerous people, we shouldn't be locking away the key, throw, locking people away and throwing away the key for the rest really, of their life. You, you don't rehabilitate a police officer who recklessly killed somebody. You are punishing them. That's what this is for. But they should, you don't rehabilitate them into the police force, right? But they should be, <laughs> at some point, uh, for a manslaughter charge, that person should be able to come back into society. They shouldn't have to be behind bars for the rest of their life because they made one horrible mistake. I think that would be excessive in this situation. But you've got to have a serious sentence. You can't have a slap on the wrist, you know, three years of minimal security. Um, or then it really is an outrage. Yeah, I mean, sentencing disparity is one of those things that has just sort of radicalized me on criminal justice reform. Just none of it makes sense. It's like mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes, right? Where if you just like pair possession and dealing of drugs with a firearm, I mean, you could find yourself doing 50 to 60 years, but without the firearm, it's just a couple. It doesn't make any sense. And that's nice because you get like a, an actual like uh, ledger where it's like, oh, this, this, this crime equals this many years. But we also want like judge discretion. We want judges to be as lenient as possible when they can and to read the room and read the person that's actually getting sentenced and come up with something customized for that person. Um, neither one make people happy because that's how you get instances where like one pedophile, right, who harms a child is going to get 60 years. There was this case in, uh, it was in Montana. A guy had admitted to uh, raping his 12-year-old daughter. Oh, he got 60 days 60 days in prison. This That's other absurd. guy in Delaware, 64 years old, he got a 125-year sentence for numerous counts of sexual abuse and rape of also same age, a 12-year-old girl who he was helping in his care. 
that doesn't make sense. And it's just sort of goes to the whole question of like, the justice system is entirely subjective. And what people consider to be justice, it's just on a case by case basis. Yeah. And the subjectivity also, uh, and I'm curious what you think of this, Olivia, but statistically, it does lead to discrepancies. I mean, black people and white people when the same crime, same evidence, same conviction, Black people will, in many cases, statistically get a longer sentence. Mm. So I think the way we do it, I, I don't have all the answers, but I just think the way we do it's broken. For sure. And it's like, especially when I think of things such as drug possession, I mean, the rates of marijuana usage between black and white people is essentially the same across the board, but black people do tend to get higher sentences and they do get tend to be arrested at a higher rate for the same crimes. Um, and I think what we have to do is look at the legislation. We should not be fighting this war on drugs. Nobody wins. Um, the big pharmaceutical companies win. Sure, the private prisons win, but the people don't. Um, so I think we've already seen from the crazy draconian tactics of the last year with all the COVID lockdowns that law enforcement tends to enforce whatever the mandates are. They will literally arrest you for attending church. Yeah. That's what we've seen. So we're not going to stop the issue by just increasing police training or making them do diversity awareness month or whatever. We need, <laughs> we need to change the legislation. Yeah. We need to end the war on drugs. We need to stop these, you know, low level offenses yeah. being forced into prison. This, the, the killing of Andrew Brown Jr. that's uh, currently got North Carolina's Elizabeth City on lockdown. That was a, a drug crime. So they were right. serving an arrest warrant to go search his house for dealing meth, um, I think a, a form of crack cocaine, um, you know, where you just have to go like, this is all part of that same uh, legacy of violence where you pit communities against their police officers over more as much stuff as possible. But before we go there, actually, I want to talk a little bit about legislation and reform because the, the fire has been rekindled over um, abolishing qualified immunity at the federal level. There's been some discussion in Congress, particularly Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, is looking to strike a deal with the likes of Cory Booker um, over qualified immunity where they will actually try to pursue federal changes that make it possible for you to sue police departments instead of individual police officers. What is the case, Brad, because you've written a lot about this, for abolishing qualified immunity? Can you qual uh, define it a little bit for people as well? Yeah, basically qualified immunity is this legal liability shield in civil court. So it's not a criminal thing, but it's if a police officer violates your right, or it actually applies to any government civil official. Civil rights, okay. Not civil criminal. rights, yeah. your constitutional rights. You can sue them for damages, for money in court except that there's this big liability shield that basically gives police officers protection and other government agents uh, from lawsuits, in, in, except in a case where there's a clearly documented precedent of exactly the same abuse in the past being held as a, an abuse. Now, the problem with that is that it basically means 80, 90, 70% of the time, they're blocked, even in really egregious cases. Like in Arizona, um, there were prison guards that, that tied a, a prisoner to a post in, yeah. in a hundred plus degree heat and taunted him with water. And because no case like that had happened in the books, they were uh, shielded from liability. So that's the problem. The well, question is what we do If that happened a second time, they wouldn't be shielded? No, they actually would have to have in the past, before okay. qualified immunity was created by judges out of thin air in, yeah. in, around 1970, they'd have to have a case from before then that would serve wow. as a precedent. What I think we should do, abolishing qualified immunity is a political non-starter. It is not going to pass in this Congress. It's not going to happen. But what you could do is go back to the old qualified immunity standard before the Supreme Court created the current one out of thin air about 40, uh, 40, 50 years ago. Before it was, if they behave reasonably, according to what a reasonable person would think, 
And if they don't, if they behave recklessly, the case can proceed, mm-hmm. right? So there's this, maybe there should be some shield for police officers. It's a difficult job. So they can't be sued a- yeah, every which way. They say that like, if we get rid of abol- uh, or abolish qualified immunity, that people won't want to be police officers. And I say, tough, I right? Have no sympathy. It's, I, have, I have no sympathy <laughs> for but that. But we don't have to entirely abolish it. We just have to allow the cases against the bad cops to proceed. There can be a common... That's what Tim Scott's talking about, yeah. suing departments instead of officers. But you're not suing departments, you're suing the taxpayers to actually pay out that money. But the when you difference go after there the is that it comes out of the police budget. For it. But it comes... The, the, you have to give the police skin in the game, and by being able to sue the department instead of suing the city, it comes out of their budget, so it's progress. <sighs> but... What I want to see happen, and this has been one of those alternative proposals put out there, is that we need to actually pursue bringing a free market mechanism into policing with insurance and liability for police officers. Surgeons and doctors have to have this stuff so that when they mess up, right, or they are known to be reckless, they pay higher insurance rates for their work, and hospitals are not the ones who are footing the bills for lawsuits. I actually think it's a fantastic idea, because right now, police departments, 1% of the most uh, reckless police officers account for five times as much of the damage lawsuits and settlements that every depart has, department has to settle for. That makes no sense. Like if you're having all of your police budget gobbled up by just like 1% of reckless cops, make them pay and have their insurance rates be higher. Yeah, look, I like the idea, but I also think, and Olivia, maybe you have thoughts on this. We can't talk about this without talking about the police unions. They get bad cops restored to the job every day that ends in Y. So you could have the liability system, but when you have these corrupt unions, good luck. Qualified immunity, I definitely think it's a shield for corrupt cops, but that is like here, and I think police unions are like up here. Like they, they basically act as a shield. I, I think they act as a shield for corrupt police officers. Um, I 100% support abolishing police unions for that reason. Yeah, I mean, police unions are one of those sort of big elephants in the room that I, I don't know how we're ever going to get around it. You're not going to get rid of public sector it's one, unions. It's one of those things where it's like, like Brad said, it's like a political non-starter. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And it's obviously the incentive to get their members to be able to do the job as they see fit, feel as less stressed as possible, not have extra costs added to their lives, such as liability insurance. Like, I'm one of those people where I sort of like want to tinker with really bad governance by making being in government a little bit more profitable for people. I say this about like Congress people, like I actually want to increase their pay, but then I would actually want to like increase their pay, but then make up other things more stringent. Same with police officers. I'd like to see them be paid a lot more, make it be a really attractive, cushy job, but also really raise those standards mm-hmm. and add on things like liability insurance, pull away qualified immunity and get the reckless bros out of policing who just think that this is a way to dominate but their I also neighbors. Think we, I, I, Look, all of that sounds good to me, but I also think we set police officers up to fail in a lot of ways. One of the things we need to talk about is the demilitarization of the police. Right now, under the 1033 program, the federal government gives police departments grenade launchers, armored vehicles, flamethrowers, bayonets. I mean, basically, I think you're bayonets. On bayonets. What? But I think you're setting up officers to fail in a lot of ways with the system. When you're asking them to go arrest people for smoking a joint in their bathroom or when you're asking them you're giving them armored vehicles and telling them to go enforce parking tickets the system is broken and i have some sympathy for police officers in the system um i don't and (laughs) (laughs) well 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 listen i this is not like me being like a cab all cops are bad blah 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 that's not who i am um however the way i see it is police are 
I think the correct way to describe them is they're armed agents of the state. They will enforce the state. And they sign up for the job knowing that they will enforce unconstitutional laws. And we have a lot of those. They sign up for the job knowing they will enforce anti-drug, law, anti-drug laws, knowing they will enforce gun control. They know what they have to do. So, And it's only yeah. gotten worse with this like warrior cop mentality, the thin, yep. the thin blue line. They think of themselves as like this separate class. Like it's, it's police versus everybody else when the police should be protecting everybody else. But as we know from Supreme Court cases, the police actually have no legal obligation to protect people, which I think is a huge problem. Protecting people might be a good segue over to talking about some of the instances of police violence that have happened uh, since the George Floyd uh, case closed. Well, not really closed, but Makia Bryant in Columbus, Ohio. So the basics of this story are this 16-year-old girl is squabbling with one of her uh, like foster siblings. They're at their mother's uh, foster mother's house. They're arguing about house cleaning. Apparently, like the other, the other person wanted the house to be kept more clean, was really offended by it, and they started fighting about it. Um, police officer shows up, they're fighting, a knife is involved. There is body cam footage that shows Nakia Bryant sort of has this person cornered against the car, and she is wielding a knife. She is pulling back, and she is lunging forward. After that, she's down on the ground, she's been shot, and she is dead. Um, this is all boiled down to like, what is the cop's obligation here? Was it to defuse the situation, to run and tackle and maybe get stabbed himself, or to shoot in defense of the person penned? You have a take on it? Cause I, this has been, this has been a tough one. First and foremost, it's a really, really sad situation. I feel as if I, I definitely relate to people saying that she was so young. It's such a shame. Um, and she should have known better. That's that's what I have to say. She should have known better. A teenager should know not to run and stab people. However, I recognize that as a foster child, she might be, you know, suffering from some mental health issues, suffering from a myriad of re- things that could have caused her to lose her temper um, and go for that knife. But again, you just have to know better. And I saw a lot of comments um, on Twitter and YouTube about this. Oh, the officer should have shot the knife out of her hand. Let like let's this be realistic. Yeah, let's please red, red let's dead be realistic. That cop is not gun. John Wick. Let's be realistic. Um, and I don't think the cop had an obligation to put himself in front of a knife um, as a girl is 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 charging at another girl. And he, I'm assuming he didn't know that the girl was 15. He didn't know that it was a an argument about cleaning the house. He just sees a teenager lunging at another one with a knife. I mean, I. He's I don't know what he's murder. supposed to. I mean, I, so the, I agree, right? Any situation where a 16 year old girl is dying, it's tragic. Mm-hmm. But I really object to this being lumped into with like George Floyd or Duante Wright or these people mistakenly killed by police. Mm-hmm. This young woman, I mean, Olivia and I were 16 not too long ago. We knew that you can't try to kill someone and stab them and announce that you're doing that on the tape. She actually says, I'm going to bleep and stab you. But we, we all know that you can't do that. And a police officer is seeing an attempted murder in front of him. He didn't take a black life. He also saved one, yeah. right? There's right. not been enough talk about the 16-year-old girl on the other end of that knife. So I think situations like this, the cop is not the villain. And it's really harmful to lump it in with other because situations. Well, we've been talking about police reform and trying to make, you know, policing less violent and have our communities be taken care of by maybe like mental health professionals or people who are designed to like, you know, break apart tense situations. This is an actual situation, a fight with a knife. This is not a mentally ill person like running around a sidewalk screaming at people where you don't need an armed police officer to deal with this. Right. You know, this, this is an armed fight and someone is about to get stabbed. I don't know why we have police officers unless it is to shoot that person in defense of the other. 
Um, I would like there to be a magic world where you could like instant transmission over there and get in between them and separate them or taser them down, but that's not how those things work. There, yeah, there's been a lot of cases in the past year where police have come under a lot of scrutiny for not being trained well enough in de-escalating situations, especially how it relates to mental health. Um, there's been cases where, um, you know, people with autism or, or other, um, you know, special needs have been treated very, very poorly by the police, even brutalized or killed. But this is just not one of those issues where, you know, a therapy session could have trained this cop to de-escalate the situation when he is literally witnessing an attempted stabbing, an attempted murder. And so now we've had like this reverse of the adultification bias thing that happens in media coverage. So we've kind of all seen this. Um, I'm trying to think of like a specific case, but I'll just sort of go with a hypothetical. So like, um, a young black man is killed unarmed, uh, and then, you know, one of the news agencies drives out video of him, um, you know, participating in illegal activity or doing things that, you know, older white people might find scary and threatening. And they go, oh, well, he's not a kid. You know, he's a thug, right? He's in a gang. And then we are supposed to interpret the case differently and feel differently about it. It's not just a 16-year-old. Now they're doing the reverse with Bryant. They're saying, well, she was a giggly little girl who combs her hair uh, and, and does funny TikTok videos. And I get that. People, we are, we're all two people. We're all like, we have different sides of us, but we also all make choices. And you don't just randomly go from like making TikTok videos to wielding a knife and going at somebody. You're throwing that out the window and your chance for not due process, but like patience from a police officer when you make that choice. And a lot of these progressives are the same people that want to make the age to vote 16. I mean, we have to talk about the fact that I reject the notion that a 16-year-old is an infant. A 16-year-old is not. They're not a full-grown adult, right? Their brain is still developing. But they know that you can't stab someone with a knife or try to do so. Um, and they know that police, you need to not escalate a situation when police arrive. So I, I, I think personal responsibility, it is absolutely a tragic situation, but personal responsibility still matters. And I, I don't like this infantilization of victims and of people who have agency. Olivia, did you see that piece in the New York Times where the writer is sort of writing about the uh, experiences of young black girls in America? Um, called it a burden, right? The burden of being a young black girl. And... It described the entire Bryant situation as sort of indicative of many people's experiences where black girls are treated as older, as bigger, as more physically threatening um, than white children are. Um, I, I can't relate to that. I was curious if you had read it, what you thought about it. I can definitely relate to that. I think it's an interesting um, intersection of being black and a woman in this country. Um, as a young child, you know, into my early teen years, 14, 15, I was constantly made out to be and painted as like the stereotypical angry black woman when I wanted to voice my opinions or when I was playing sports. I'm a, I was a very competitive athlete, you know, since I was like three years old in a, mu a multitude of different sports. And there were several times where people would literally say to my face, I'm scared of you. You're being aggressive. You're being bossy. You're being angry. And, and, <laughs> and several times, and this is not an exaggeration, several of those times, specifically, I remember, uh, of my high school JV volleyball team mentioned that she was scared of me because I was black and I could be aggressive with her. We were teammates. It was not a combat sport. So this is, this is constantly a thing that I face. I'm not really going to act like a victim about it because everybody deals with their own stereotypes. Right. I mean, I think that white men are being very vilified right now. We all have, you know, our different issues to struggle with. But in this case, um, I don't think it applies. I really don't think it applies because in my case, I was just playing volleyball. 
In this young lady's case, she was trying to stab somebody. I wish we could stop taking these meta narratives, which I listen, that sounds perfectly valid. I can't sit here and say that's not true. I mean, I'm happy to believe it and talk about it, but I wish we could stop taking meta narratives and imposing them on individual outcomes and situations, regardless of the facts and circumstances, because I really think that's not productive. And I think it just doesn't work. Well, it makes it hard to talk about every individual case and understand what happened. I mean, after the Atlanta killings, there were a slew of stories about sort of the, the Asian experience in America from its founding, particularly when a lot of Chinese Americans or, you know, Chinese came here to this country to work on the railroads in the, in the 19th century. And I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around what happened in Atlanta. Why did this guy kill all of these spa workers? And you're talking to me about like, like the history of the country. And it just makes it hard to discuss this one single case and be like, was this racism or was this just something like, you know, fundamentalist Christian, like wiling out? You can't have these meta discussions and the details at the same time. And the media wants to have it both ways. And that's why the conversation is not going anywhere productive. <laughs> Has it ever? Um, I was just real quick because I, we've, we've kind of changed course a little bit, um, towards what's going on in Elizabeth City. Um, I, maybe it's because the Bryant story is not exactly yielding like the narrative that the media wanted. They seem to have moved on pretty quickly. But right now, Elizabeth City, North Carolina is, um, shut down. They're expecting a lot more protests to go brewing. Um, and this is all over some body cam footage that has just been like limited release to the family. So this guy was being served an arrest warrant. This is Andrew Brown Jr. for drugs. Uh, and he was going to have his house searched as well. When cops arrived, he is pulling out of the driveway, presumably to get out of Dodge. Um, they surround the car and he ends up dead by the end of the exchange. What we have learned so far is that he might have had his hands on the steering wheel and then he was shot in the head. And his family has seen 30 seconds of the body cam footage and said he was executed. Nobody else has seen anything. And it just kind of for me, well, there's the drug war element too, but like there's also the body cam thing. Body cams are not doing what people thought they would do. Everybody sees something different. I mean... That, that's very true. And I really, really am curious to see that body cam footage because if it is so clear cut that his hands were on the steering wheel, like he wasn't armed, he wasn't shooting, then of course that's ex- ex- execution. But I just, I, I'm really curious to see it before I can make up my mind, you know? But I, so I, I guess I would say that that's not a case of body cams not doing what they're supposed to because body cams aren't even required in many places and the disclosure of the footage should be required. I mean, any, any police shooting, yeah. I think there should be mandated body cams and then release the footage to the public should be mandatory. It's accountability. These people are our employees. That's not an anti-police thing. Just as often, we don't always hear about it in the headlines, but body cams vindicate officers. They show that they didn't do anything wrong. This person is making a false accusation against them. So I think transparency is only good. And in this case, the problem is not that body cams didn't stop it. It's that we only have 30 seconds of footage being seen by some people and no one really knows what happened. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's the... the incumbent on police departments to always release the footage to the public. I think they should be required to under law. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is where police unions are always gumming up the works and trying to make it as difficult as possible for there to be transparency. And it's frustrating. I mean, to, to Brad's point, they do often, you know, let the officers, 
officers off the hook when they are right. I mean, in the Bryant case, the first thing I saw about that case before I ever saw the body cam footage was that an officer murdered a little black girl. Yeah. I didn't know what context. I didn't know that she was armed because none of the left wing media was reporting that she was about to stab right. another girl. So when I look at the body cam footage, I'm like, this is a clear cut case. He had to do what he had to do. And what happened to Black Lives Matter? He saved, as, as Brad said, he saved a black life. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with his point that body cam footage should be made public. Olivia, what's been your journey on this? Because you seem to really set a, like a, a, not a, a, not a messy intersection, but a complicated intersection of views on this. Like you, you support the idea of Black Lives Matter, BLM. You're also open to the idea that like cops have a job to do. They can use lethal force, but you also call them agents of the state. Like it's a very, um, mm. neat set of, uh, libertarian opinions. And I actually identify with a lot of them. How did you get there? And were you always um, sort of having this complicated mix of opinions on it? I mean, I grew up, I've been accosted by the police, I don't know how many times in my life. The most recent time I was campaigning for Republicans in the Senate runoff in Georgia, um, door to door knocking, I got stopped by the police, was detained for 30 minutes because I didn't have a permit. You don't, do you don't need a permit to canvas yeah, under the first amendment. To speak. <laughs> you don't need a permit to canvas. But they stopped me and detained me for 30 minutes while I was doing my job. Uh, so, you know, I, I have a lot of negative interactions with the police. I maybe have like one positive interaction with the police my whole life. And then, as I said before, I, I, I think there is, it's necessary for law enforcement. I think that at least we have like the bare, bare minimum to protect people. But, Police know what they're signing up for. They know that they're going to be arresting people on drug charges. They know that they're going to be arresting people on red flag laws. Horrible, horrible anti-Second Amendment policies. Horrible, horrible just anti-Constitution policies. So I lack a little bit of sympathy for them there. Um, and then I did grow up as m raised in a kind of conservative environment. I don't want to say I was raised in a very political household, but I grew up around guns. I grew up fighting in MMA. I've always been a very like self-protection person. So I feel as if I just put my protection in my own hands. I don't need the police and I'll criticize them as I see fit. But I'm also trying to be consistent and be like, they have to do what they have to do at sometimes. And that's the interesting question from the African-American po point of view in the community. Polling shows they want more police in their neighborhoods, a majority of African-American voters. They don't want to defund the police. So what do you think of that disconnect between the progressive wish casting and the realities of what black America, most of the people in those communities want? It's really, really crazy that it's majority white liberals think that they know what they, what the black community wants. And they're always talking about, you know, gun control. That's one issue that really, really gets me because it's like white liberals at the forefront of this huge gun control movement. When black cities, if you look at Baltimore, DC, New York City, Chicago have the strictest amounts of the strictest gun control in the entire country. To me, that's systemic racism. To me, that's anti-black, but to white liberals, they're like, finally, we're getting these guns out of these dangerous black ghetto communities like no that's kind of racist and when you, when you really think about it i i think that more black americans want to have guns to protect themselves i mean the highest the fastest growing demographic of new gun owners is black women actually so that just goes to show white liberals really don't know what black communities want certain black communities yes they want more policing they want to own guns i think black people are a lot more conservative than white liberals and white conservatives tend to believe i was doing tv last week and one of the comments uh, from one of the hosts was about 
majority black Americans, like black Americans are, are by and large affected the most by gun violence in cities, right. that they are victimized by it more. So therefore, gun, gun control should be pursued as a matter of social justice. Well, by that metric, you would also look at the war on drugs and say, like, well, it, it affects black and brown communities the most, the input of drugs into the country, and it's destroying communities. Therefore, we should have a war on drugs to get them out. No. But no, they're the ones who end up with the most confrontations with the police, the police coming after them the most. And what do you think is going to happen in downtown Chicago if having a handgun is even more criminalized than it already is? It's not going to be white Americans and white liberals facing more confrontations with well, police. And it's also blacks. the tiny percentage percentage of the black community that's involved in gangs or criminal behavior that that causes some of this violence are not going to be the ones obeying gun control laws. It's going to be the vast, vast, vast majority of black Americans who are law-abiding citizens who, if there's new gun control, well, they can't have a gun, they can't defend themselves. They're the ones hurt by this. The criminals and the gangs aren't going to say, well, you know, we were going to bring in that, that load of black market uh, AR-15s from Mexico, but uh, Lori Lightfoot just signed an executive order, so I guess we'll have to cancel that. No, that's not how that works. This gun control legislation will not be affecting these gangs. I guarantee none of those gangs have guns with serial numbers. They've been fouled off. They're dead. They're, they don't exist in the system. The people <laughs> that will guns. have their, yeah, they're ghost guns. <laughs> the people that will have their guns taken away is like the single mother in the hood who has a handgun for protection. It's, it's completely backwards. It's totally backwards. And, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Maj Trey. He's the founder of Black Guns Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. he recently posted a link to a news story a couple of days ago of a black teenager, teenager who was visiting someone, I believe, in New York City. He's not a native, native to New York City. He was unfamiliar with the gun laws. In his bag on the way to the person who was visiting's apartment, he had a deconstructed rifle unloaded, no ammo in the gun. He's arrested and he was, he was charged for, you know, illegally owning a gun in New York City. And it was just, crazy how it was a black it was just a black teenager owning a rifle practicing his second amendment rights and the white liberals who run that city took it away they want to throw him in jail for it was he traveling was he traveling across state and city lines from out of state or was he already a resident of that area i believe he was already in new york state but traveling into the city that's even more crazy then he was he was literally just unaware of the laws he didn't know that the laws changed when he you know moved from municipality to into the new york city Well, good thing the Supreme Court's going to be taking up exactly this in the state of New York here in their upcoming session and really figure out what are going to be the laws for concealed carry in New York, um, as well as transporting them across state lines. They've got a rule on it so that the rest of the country can figure out what the heck Second Amendment rights really are. That might be a good place to wrap it up. Olivia, I would actually really love if you could tell people where they can find more of your work, like follow you on YouTube and all that stuff so people can keep up with you. Oh, well, I do have a live stream show, usually weekly on YouTube. That's just my name, Olivia Rondo, R-O-N-D-E-A-U. I'm also on Twitter at Rondo Olivia. Um, go find me on there. That's basically my two main sites I'm always on. <laughs> thank you thank you so much for coming on right now this week. It's really nice to have thank you down you so from much. Maryland to do this. That is it for right now. Stephen Kent, that is me. I hope you enjoyed the show, and please leave us a review, comment. I will respond to them personally. I always do, and we really hope you'll subscribe to the show. We are on YouTube every Thursday, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>